I'd like to turn to Isaiah chapter 49 to start off with. We'll just read one verse as kind of an introduction tonight. <clears throat> Isaiah 49 in verse 7. <clears throat> Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, and its Holy One, to the despised one, to the one abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see and arise. Princes will also bow down. Because of the Lord, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. I'd like to share some thoughts tonight related to the the faithfulness of God. And I think part of this was prompted by the just the time of year that it is. And whether I do it consciously or not, this time of year, usually I find myself, you know, reflecting back on the year that's passed and looking ahead to what's to come. Um, and usually it, it ends up being somewhat depressing as I look back and I think, you know, what have I accomplished this year for the Lord? How have I advanced the kingdom this year? How have I grown? Am I more Christ-like now than I was when the year started? Uh, I think of that phrase, uh, that little saying that a lot of you have up in your homes, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And that's a sobering thought uh, when you think back on the year that's passed and the year that's coming. Uh, what are we doing for the Lord? What have I done for the Lord? Have I grown? Uh, where am I going to be at this time next year? Am I going to be pressing on with the Lord? Am I going to be bearing fruit? And these aren't just, you know, nice little things to ask yourself. I mean, these are serious questions. You're talking about life and death, heaven and hell. Are you going to be continuing on with the Lord this time next year? I mean, it's the difference between Peter and Judas. It's the difference between finishing the course or making shipwreck of your faith like Hymenaeus and Alexander. It's the difference between bearing 30, 60, or 100-fold fruit or being choked out by what the Scriptures say, the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things. And so, you know, it's not this idea of, well, I need to make some New Year's resolutions. You know, I need to try harder next year. I mean, these are, these are serious and sobering things to think about. Think of what Paul says there again in Colossians 1. He says... Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. And I think of the words of the Lord there in John 8. If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And so these kinds of things are the things that come to my mind this time of year, you know, as I'm looking ahead to what's coming. Um, and so I think that's one of the big things that prompted this this idea of the, the faithfulness of God, because I need encouragement this time of year, uh, encouragement to press on, encouragement to keep going. Uh, I need something that I can hold on to and something that I can uh, use as a rock just to stand on for the year to come. And I find a lot of encouragement in three words, God is faithful. God is faithful. Uh, and so that's what I just want to share on tonight. Just a few things on this idea of the faithfulness of God. 
And we're just going to look at a few different passages that touch on this. I mean, we could look at so many different things, and we could be here for, well, we will be here for eternity doing just that, basically talking about the faithfulness of God. Um, But just to look at a few passages tonight related to this, and hopefully it will be an encouragement to you and to myself as we press on into the year that's coming for the Lord. Uh, So 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is where we'll kind of really begin tonight. First Corinthians one and verse four. Paul says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you so that you are not lacking in any gift awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And then just hold your place there and flip over to 1 Thessalonians 5. Very similar passage. First Thessalonians 5, uh, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you. There it is again. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. So in these two verses then, we see that God is faithful to do what? Well, two things mainly. One, He's faithful to confirm you to the end. If you're a Christian here tonight, and this is an incredible thought, God Himself is faithful to confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And also, God is faithful to sanctify you entirely and to preserve you completely without the blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so God is faithful in doing these things. Um, notice also the idea here of calling that, that occurs in both passages. Back in 1 Corinthians, it says in verse 9, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son. 1 Thessalonians 5, faithful is He who calls you. Now, how can Paul, how can Paul be so sure that God is really going to do this thing for us? How can Paul be so sure? Well, he knows because God's called you as a Christian. In other words, he bases his, his assurance that God is going to be faithful to do these things on the fact that God has called you to himself. And we see that because that word calling, that idea of calling occurs in both of these passages. In other words, when God calls a person, when God calls a person, that person becomes part of a secure and certain plan that stretches from eternity past to eternity future. And immediately that passage there in Romans 8 comes to mind. We know... Paul says that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. You see, this kind of calling that Paul's talking about in all of these passages is not just the general call of the gospel that goes out to everyone. It's the specific call that God gives when he calls a person to come to him 
calls a person into fellowship with his son, calls a person effectually from darkness to light, from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of his beloved son. So it's an effectual call. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. So this idea of calling here is a great certainty to Paul that God is going to be faithful to complete this work that he's begun. Uh, Another way to say it is that when God calls a person into a relationship with himself, God enters into a covenant relationship with that person. He enters into covenant with that person. He takes upon himself, this is amazing, God takes upon himself the responsibility to ensure that that person makes it to the end and confirms them to the end. God takes it upon himself. Now, it's good here to be reminded of the, um, the teaching of the book of Hebrews with regards to the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Um, let me just read this to you here. This is from Hebrews 8, uh, talking about Christ. It says, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, the New Covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. So you have a better covenant, you have better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. Well, what was wrong with the first covenant? What was wrong with the old covenant? Well, nothing, basically, he tells us here, for finding fault with them. You see, it's not the covenant's fault. It was the people's fault. It was the sinful flesh that was the fault. For finding fault with them, with the people, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. Again, he found fault with the people because they did not continue. And I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. And then we just have a slew of of verses that contain one of my most favorite phrases in all the Bible. I will. God saying, I will. He says, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God. And then you go down a couple of verses. For I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And when you go back to that passage that that's quoted from in Jeremiah 31, in the span of three verses, we have that little phrase, I will, occurring seven times. And another new covenant promise in Jeremiah 32, 37 to 41, God says, I will, nine times. In Ezekiel 36, 24 through 30, he says, I will, 11 times. And another new covenant, these are all promises concerning the new covenant, you see. In Hosea chapter 2, another prophecy concerning the new covenant, verses 14 to 23, 14 times God says, I will, verse after verse. Now, what's the point? The point is, is that when a person is called to God into fellowship with his son, God takes it upon himself to ensure that that person makes it to the end, to confirm them to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I will, I will. I will again and again to get the point across to us that this thing ultimately depends not upon you, not upon your ability to persevere, but upon God and His faithfulness to His own word that He has spoken, to His own promise that He has spoken concerning you. It's one thing, beloved, for one for another person to say to you, I will do such and such. 
But it's an entirely different thing when God himself says, I will do something. I mean, when we say, I will do something for this person or whatever, what we really mean is, you know, to the best of my ability, if things go okay, if I'm not, you know, hindered in some way from some kind of outside circumstances. But you have to realize when God says, I will, it carries with it omnipotent force, omnipotent power. It carries with it infinite wisdom. There are no outside circumstances that God doesn't foresee happening. Nothing catches him by surprise like it does us when we you know, plan to do something for someone. When he says, I will, it's a promise, it's a guarantee that it will occur. So where will you be at this time next year as a Christian? Well, if you're a Christian here tonight, I can tell you right where you're going to be. You're going to be pressing on with God, and you're going to be going on with the Lord, and you're going to be bearing fruit for him. Why? Because you're so good and strong in yourself? No, we know that's foolish. We know that's not true. But because God himself has undertaken to deliver you from sin and to keep you and to cause you to bear fruit, like it says in Colossians 1, through Jesus Christ to his glory and praise, bearing fruit for him. And it's amazing, isn't it, that Paul can even say this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians. Now, what do we know about the Corinthian church? I mean, failure upon failure, there were divisions, there was immorality, there was this and there was that. If there was any church we would pick out in the New Testament that we know about that had letters written to it where it seems like it's a very carnal and just worldly church, we would pick the Corinthian church. And yet, even to that church, Paul can write what he said there. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son. He will confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we know just from that by itself that it's not because of you know their ability or their strength or their power to get this thing done. It's because of God's own faithfulness. God is faithful through whom you were called. God has made it a matter of His own faithfulness to see that you make it through. And the only way for a Christian to perish is if God ceases to be God. I like this quote from Leon Morris, a commentator. He said this, just just one sentence really struck me. It is profoundly satisfying to the believer that in the last resort, what matters is not his feeble hold on God, but God's strong grip on him. And that's true, isn't it? Uh, And that's really an encouragement to us. Uh, Think of what, what the Lord said there. In John chapter 6, he said, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. And then again in John chapter 10, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So the bottom line is this. This is from Numbers twenty-three, nineteen. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? In other words, God's word is enough. When he says, I will, he will. And he does for every Christian. So another passage then on this idea of the faithfulness of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 
In the first few verses here, you'll remember that Paul is recounting some of the things that happened to the, the nation of Israel, the wilderness generation, um, some of the things that they, they went through, uh, different sins and things that they committed. And, uh, and he says this, starting in verse 11, he's talking about these things that were written about this, uh, this wilderness generation in the Old Testament. He says, now these things happened to them as an example And they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful. There it is again. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So there in verse 13, God is faithful. Uh, And it's amazing, isn't it, that Paul would even think to bring up the faithfulness of God uh, when he's he's talking about overcoming temptation. Doesn't that seem kind of strange to you that, you know, just out of the blue, Paul would bring up this idea of the faithfulness of God in the midst of a discussion about overcoming sin and temptation in the life of the Christian? Um, so this is something we can ask ourselves. Do we think of God's faithfulness when we think about battling temptation? In your mind, in your mind, Christian, does the faithfulness of God have anything to do with you overcoming temptation in your own life? For Paul, it did, and for us, it should as well. Now, just as an aside, I think this really shows us how practical of a thinker Paul was when it came to talking about the characteristics or the attributes of God. Um, for Paul, the character of God, the faithfulness of God, and all these different kinds of things we could talk about, how, who God is and what He is like, these things were not just something to be approached in a kind of detached, you know, philosophical way. And you can kind of get this feeling sometimes, even uh, from, from books that are really good and helpful in a lot of ways, and I've profited a lot from books like this. But a lot of times you'll read a book on the attributes of God or on the character of God and it's kind of, well, here's one of his attributes and here's a definition of it and here's some verses that talk about it. And it's just this kind of you know, detached philosophical way of looking at the world. And God is just this kind of object that you're you know, kind of studying and what is he like and what's he about and that kind of thing. Um, but for Paul, the character of God and the attributes of God had massive implications for his day-to-day life. Uh, for how he lived and how he overcame temptation. Uh, And it should for our lives as well. Massive implications for moment by moment. Um, How we're living at work and at at school, in the home, at the mall, at the restaurant, at the park, wherever you are. And we would tend to ask, what in the world does God's faithfulness have to do um, with this kind of stuff? You know, this kind of basic, you know, going to work, going to school. You know, just things you do every day. What does God's faithfulness have to do with any of that stuff? And Paul's answer is absolutely everything. Wherever temptation is, there the faithfulness of God is manifested. That's quite a thought. Wherever temptation is, there the faithfulness of God is manifested. And this is one of the glories of Christianity and of the gospel, that it's not just a bunch of philosophical ideas that we talk about. You know, we all sit around and talk about God and talk about the gospel and just, 
you know, we should just talk about these things in a detached philosophical way, but it has no bearing on our daily lives. That's not Christianity, and that's not the gospel, even though a lot of people do that. In, in real Christianity, the living God, the living God, comes into your life and changes you personally. God meets us where we are and begins to change every area of our life. So, First uh, Corinthians 10, then, God is faithful, verse 13, to do what? Two different things, again, that we see here. God is faithful, one, to not allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able to endure. And secondly, to provide a way of escape along with the temptation. So God is faithful, again, to do these things. Now, what does this tell us? Just a few different uh, implications of this. First of all, it tells us that God is in control of every temptation that occurs in the life of the believer. God is in control of every temptation that occurs in the life of a believer. You could even say, and take this in the right sense, that God is involved in every temptation the believer faces. Uh, in other words, God doesn't have his back turned when you're struggling with temptation. It's not, you're not struggling with sin and temptation because God has somehow turned his back on you. Uh, they take place, every temptation takes place under his ever-watchful eye. And I like this quote uh, from another commentator. He said this, All the circumstances, causes, and agents that lead to temptation are under the control of God. Every man that tempts, every fallen spirit that is engaged in this, every book, picture, place of amusement, every charm of music and of song, every piece of indecent statuary, Every plan of business, of gain, or ambition are all under the control of God. He can check them. He can control them. He can paralyze their influence. He can destroy them. That was from Albert Barnes. This should be a great encouragement to us because only if God is involved in in the temptations that we suffer can we have any assurance that He'll be faithful to keep us from being tempted beyond what we are able and that He'll be faithful to provide a way of escape for us. You see that? If he's not involved in the temptation at all, then we can't know for sure that he is going to do the things that verse 13 says he will do. In other words, God is either in control or he isn't. And if he isn't, then we can't be sure that he'll faithfully keep us uh, from being tempted beyond what we are able and he'll be faithful to provide a way of escape. Uh, secondly, then, uh, we learn here that sin is not, and I, I'm not sure how to say this exactly, but for lack of a better term, uh, willful conscious sin is not a necessity for the Christian. And I, I hope you understand what I mean by that. Um, in other words, for every Christian here tonight, and we need to be reminded of this, don't we? We need to be reminded that you do not have to sin, Christian. You do not have to sin. And... It's so, it's so simple, but we, we lose sight of this so easily. Um, there is a constant pressure from all kinds of things, from all sides, that constantly is trying to get us into this mindset of, of kind of settling in with sin or resignation, you know, just kind of giving up and saying, well, you know, I guess I'll just never have victory over that thing, whatever it is. Or you get up in the morning and your first thought is, well, I wonder how many times I'm going to fail the Lord today. You know, and it's that's not the mindset of the of the Bible when it comes to the Christian and battling temptation. <clears throat> Our mindset really should be this: that there, when we get up in the morning, um, 
tell yourself this, remind yourself of this. Right now, this time of year, in a few days when you're going to be launching into a new year, remind yourself of this, that there is not a single temptation that you are going to face, whether tomorrow, next week, or next year, that there is not a single temptation that you are going to face that with the grace of God you have to be defeated by. And that's true. And we need to be reminded of that. And why is that? Because God is faithful. You see that? That's the whole point of the, of the text. Because God is faithful, you do not have to be defeated by that thing. Why? Because, one, He keeps you from being tempted beyond what you can bear. And two, because He always provides a way of escape. He's faithful to do that. You see, it's a matter of His character. It's a matter of His Word. It's a matter of promise to you as a Christian that God will not allow those things to happen to you. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. And He always will provide a way of escape. Because of his own faithfulness, it ensures that he will. So just a reminder there, um, something that I feel like I lose sight of all the time, and it's easy to get discouraged and to fall into you know, patterns of unbelief and resignation, and, but just that we would believe this, that we would believe what this verse is saying and that we would act upon it. Notice Paul doesn't just stop with verse 13. Verse 14, therefore... Well, therefore what? Therefore, because of what he just said about the faithfulness of God in the midst of temptation, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry or flee from whatever it is that you're struggling with. Flee from that thing. It doesn't have to have hold of you anymore. In the words of Hebrews, let us cast aside every weight in the sin that so easily entangles and run with endurance the race set before us that God would spare us from this attitude of, of settling in or resignation. Really something we need to be praying for ourselves and for everybody around us. That God would spare us from that. Well, thirdly then, one more passage. This is the last one we'll look at with regards to the faithfulness of God. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, start with. <clears throat> it says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. For he who promised is faithful. And I wanted to end with this particular word about the faithfulness of God because I think it's especially applicable to where we are right now again as we stand before the dawn of a new year um, I don't know what's in store for you, and you don't know what's in store for you, and I don't know what's in store for me. But one thing I do know that in the year ahead, 
that you are going to hear voices from every side bombarding you, telling you to give up this thing of the Christian life, to give up this race, to just give in, to give up going on with God, to give up on persevering. Um, We know that for sure, that that is something we're going to be facing. Whether from the media or whether from other people, uh, whether from Satan, we're going to be hearing voices imploring us to give up telling us that following God is too hard or it's too costly or it's causing you to miss out on so many different things or it just isn't worth it, etc., etc. And the Christians here in the book of Hebrews were beginning to listen to some of these voices, which is why the writer has to say some of the things that he says to them. For example, in chapter 3, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. And then again, a few verses later, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Chapter 4, verse 14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. There's that idea of holding fast our confession again. And then here again in chapter 10, the same idea of holding fast the confession. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. But notice that he doesn't just stop. Uh, He doesn't just say, let us hold fast the confession uh, of our hope without wavering. But he undergirds all of that with a promise. Uh, And it is an amazing thing. For, why should we hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering? For, because he who promised is faithful. So here it is, Christian. Why should you? Why should you hold fast in the days of head? Why should you be looking forward to this new year, uh, standing on the rock of, of what God has done and what He has said and pressing on with Him? Why should you ignore all those voices around you that are clamoring for your attention and telling you to give up and telling you to just give in and forget about this thing? Well, because God has promised some things to those who finish the course. He's promised a lot of things to those who finish the course, and God is faithful to His promise. That's the idea there. Faithful He who promised is faithful. So just in closing, then, what are some things that God has promised the Christian? And this is something, again, I don't feel like I think about enough. You know, God has promised you as a Christian things beyond your imagination to finish the course, to encourage you to press on with Him, to encourage you to finish to encourage you to cast aside those sins and the weights that so easily entangle and to run with endurance the race set before you. So let me just ask, what are some of the things that the Christian has to look forward to? I mean, you could almost just say eternal life, and that would cover everything, but our idea of eternal life a lot of times isn't right either. And we just have this idea of existing forever. Well, people in hell exist forever too. That's not eternal life. So what are some of the things that God has promised? Okay. Jim said joy and peace and believing. And that's, I mean, again, those will seem like just, you know, joy and peace. Well, of course. But to have joy in the midst of a fallen world, you'd realize how incredible, I mean, real joy. 
not just passing joy, but to have joy that you know is going to last throughout all eternity, and to have that joy right now in the midst of a fallen, a wicked, and perverse generation. That's an incredible thing. And to have peace with God, to know that the judge of all the earth is at peace with you. So what else? It's amazing how over and over again God describes His relationship with His people in the most intimate terms that you can use. Uh, Talking about the father and the son relationship and then even talking about the marriage relationship of the husband and a wife. Uh, Intimate fellowship with God Himself. How about a glorified body? Just being able to look forward to getting a glorified body and getting rid of this body that's constantly decaying and constantly wearing down. And I mean, I'm young, but it's it goes. <laughs> I mean, I'm feeling already. Look back on high school, you know, those were the glory days, and that wasn't all that long ago. But <laughs> but seriously, though, think of how I mean. How many times have you wanted, you know, to do something for the Lord, or you, you know, something? Um, maybe you're in a you're in a meeting and you're trying to worship, and it's your body is dragging you down. You know, just you're tired and uh, you're distracted. Um, you know, you're hungry and you can't. Th- you know, just all those kinds of different things we don't even think about. Um, but to get a glorified body, to be done with with all that stuff, I mean, that's an amazing thing. I thought I would read these verses from Revel- later on in Revelation. Charles was reading from the first few chapters there primarily. But later on in chapter 21, it says this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. And He will wipe every tear away from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And then again in chapter 22, Then He showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And His bondservants will serve Him. And I love this. They will see His face. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night. And they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun. Because the Lord God will illumine them. And they will reign forever and ever. So just some words of encouragement there. And again, don't, don't allow you know, the carnal world's ideas of heaven to rob you of the joy of what it really is about. You know, so often we overreact to these different kinds of things. I remember a time in my life where I feel like I really overreacted to the modern idea of the love of God. 
to the extent, you know, it's this idea that God loves everybody and, you know, just smile, God loves you, that kind of thing. And I overreacted to that and went so far the other way where it was like I didn't even want to talk about the love of God. You know, if somebody talked about the love of God, it was like, ugh. You know, I mean, that's, that is wrong. That is so wrong. And we can do the same thing with these things about heaven. You know, we, we hear all these false carnal ideas about heaven to the extent that we just don't even want to think about heaven anymore. And that is equally wrong. Uh, these things are here to encourage us. Again, he who promised is faithful. And these are just a tiny little bit, the head of a pen of the things that he's promised for those who finish the course, for those who press on with him. And so all these things are written for our encouragement. Just to close with this, I thought this was really good. A lot of you know this hymn probably, and I, I don't know if I've ever sung it, but uh, this hymn, Standing at the Portal by Havergal. I mean, really, she says everything here that I tried to say in my message. Um, let me just read this to you. It's 125 in the Redemption. It says, Standing at the portal of the opening year, words of comfort meet us, hushing every fear. Spoken through the silence by our Father's voice, tender, strong, and faithful, making us rejoice. I, the Lord, am with thee, be thou not afraid. I will help and strengthen, be thou not dismayed. Yea, I will uphold thee with my own right hand. Thou art called and chosen in my sight to stand. There's that, there's that idea of preserving them blameless until the day of the Lord. For the year before us, oh, what rich supplies. For the poor and needy, living streams shall rise. For the sad and sinful shall his grace abound. For the faint and feeble, perfect strength be found. He will never fail us. He will not forsake. His eternal covenant he will never break. There is that idea of the I will. His eternal covenant he will never break. Resting on his promise, what have we to fear? God is all sufficient for the coming year. And that really says it all right, that last line. God is all sufficient for the coming year. God is faithful. And then let me just leave you with the refrain. It goes like this. And this is really just, uh, I guess, a, a challenge to us all. Onward then and fear not, children of the day, for his word shall never, never pass away. Now let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we marvel at how unbelieving we can be in light of Your faithfulness and in light of Your goodness towards us. Father, that You would even stoop to reveal Yourself at all to mankind, but then that You would even think of entering into a relationship with us, Lord, where You undertake to keep us. Father, help us to believe these things. Help us, Lord, in these days to press on with You to go onward, to go upward. Like Paul says, Lord, counting all things lost for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Father, we confess that we need Your help. Lord, we need grace. We need You to work in us that which is pleasing in Your sight, Lord, both to will and to do of Your good pleasure. Father, we pray for more of Your Holy Spirit in these days. Lord, to live as we ought, to walk as we ought to love as we ought. Lord, thank You for these words. 
that God is faithful. Help us, Lord, to rest upon this rock. In Jesus' name, amen.